John, let's open up our scriptures. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 6. Excited to open up the scriptures again with you and take a look. So if you have a Bible or some kind of device, uh, we're in Mark chapter 6. I'd like to read the passage together and then charge in with what the Lord's put on my heart. Our section, as we're studying through the book of Mark, begins in verse 14 of Mark chapter 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give, give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Would you pray with me? Father, bless the reading of your word and the, now the preaching of it. We pray, Lord, that through it all, this high and ultimate goal for your glory would take place. Take place through it all, take place in our hearts, Lord, that we would leave this place with a higher view of who you are and that you would be more glorious in our sights. And because of that, you would change and transform our lives. Lord, we are here being made your disciples. So make us according to your will, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark wrote this gospel account with those things. We've been saying this week after week as we've been studying through this book. He wrote to teach us who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We're keeping those goals in mind and using that as a grid every time we go into a passage. What does this tell us about Jesus and what does it tell us about following Jesus? Because that's what Mark was after and that's what we're after in hearing and listening and, and learning. Now, Mark intersects 
in a section here that is about the sending of the 12. So he starts a story about sending the 12 out on their first short-term mission trip. But before he draws a conclusion to that where they return and give a report, he interjects some things into that middle of the story. Some theologians call it a Markin sandwich. It takes two slices of bread and puts something in the middle. And that fact, that literary fact, is not just some Bible trivia. It's like Mark puts something on the sandwich for a reason. So what's for lunch? What are we eating? What are we supposed to get? Why did he put this account of John's death in the middle of this? And Mark is trying to teach us something about being disciples. The twelve were sent out, but they get this story, this account, this recounting of John and Herod, and something here is to be learned about what it means to actually be a true disciple of Jesus. We're going to look at these two men that we just read about, John the Baptist and the Herod, uh, Herod the king, not the king, but the king in the story here. John the Baptist in Scripture is laid out as the, as the real hero and, and gives us a picture of a true disciple. Herod, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. John the Baptist has the reputation that all of us as Christians would want but lived a life that none of us would choose. Herod, on the other hand, had the life that many of us would want. He had it all, but ended with a reputation that none of us would want. So we're getting a bit of a contrast between these two men. And the key here is that being a true disciple is not to be disillusioned with either the trials that John faced or the pleasures that Herod had. Instead, every disciple is to keep their eyes fixed upon Jesus and who he is. This is the difficult part in the recruiter's office. When somebody comes to enlist in the services and you need to have this very sincere talk at some point and explain, well, it's a wonderful thing, it's a good thing that you're signing up and enlisting, this is good, this is honorable, but you need to know. By enlisting, your life will never be the same. And by enlisting, it could actually cost you your life. You need to know this at the beginning. You need to know what you're signing up for. And here as the disciples are getting sent out, here comes this story sandwiched in the midst of this being sent out of the 12, telling us, look, what it means to be a true disciple could cost you your life. We're looking at the cost of discipleship this morning. And John and Herod are going to teach us a few things about being a true disciple of Jesus. First point then is the disciple sees Jesus for who he is. It's the main thrust of our study in the gospel according to Mark. Know and see Jesus for who he is. This is the context again. And as I began to read the passage, it started off again with this major question, who is Jesus? Who are people saying that Jesus is? Well, I think he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. I think he's Elijah. I think he's one of the prophets. Again, we're in the context of trying to answer this question, who is this Jesus? That's Mark's main question. And then we're introduced to Herod, Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. 
Herod, this Herod here, Herod Antipas, is one of four sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great from the story of Jesus' birth who tried to kill baby Jesus and killed all the boys in the area. Well, this is one of his sons, and he's set to reign over a region. It's called a tetrarch, which is a fourth of a province. Now, our text says King Herod, but he wasn't actually a king wasn't specifically a king, although we, we wonder maybe people just sort of casually refer to him as a king because for all intents and purposes, he was a delegate of Rome ruling over a region. But there could also be a little bit of irony, a little bit of sarcasm in calling him King Herod when he was not actually a king because later on, he was so hard-pressed and vying for the position of king, it turned out to be his undoing. So he's presented as a very self-centered, ambitious man wanting to be king. And so there could be a sense of, by calling him King Herod, a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of bite to it there. When Herod heard of Jesus, immediately what came to his mind was, oh, this is John, come back from the dead. Of all the speculations of who Jesus is, there was a list of ideas. He might be this, he might be that. Who is he? Is he this? Is he that? Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? Herod, when he heard, immediately, this has got to be John coming back from the dead because Herod lived with a guilty conscience. And here we read the story of what he did to John the Baptist. So when Jesus comes along, the first thing that Herod perceives is that Jesus is somehow some kind of a threat to him. Just like his father, when Jesus was born, and there was a declaration that a king has been born. King Herod sees Jesus as a threat to his position and tries to eliminate the baby Jesus. Here, now his son, after executing John unjustly, knowing it in his conscience he should not have done it, now Jesus shows up and Jesus is presented as a threat to him. Jesus is coming to depose me. Jesus is coming to expose me. Jesus is here, and it's not good for me. Jesus is out to get me. His own heart blinded him to the reality of who Jesus is. The oldest lie in the book. God is not really for you. God does not really mean for your good. Did God really say? All the way back to the garden, here comes the original lie from the enemy. Jesus is not for your good. God is not out for your best. He's here for your harm. And that was exactly what Herod's response was. John, on the other hand, and we're contrasting these two men, what was John's view of Jesus when he saw Jesus coming over the hill? What did he declare? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Herod, behold Jesus coming to condemn me for my sins. John, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Not a threat, but a Savior. Do you know who Jesus is? He's not a threat. He's a Savior. Not coming to condemn. Coming to save. Coming as a king to take his throne. In a sense, Herod the Great was right. 
although he didn't understand about the kingdom. A disciple, a true disciple, recognizes that this is a good thing. For Jesus to take his throne, for Jesus to come and deal with my sin, these are not bad things. These are not things that threaten me. These are things that are for me, that are for my good. There is nothing better. There is nothing more for your happiness and mine than for Jesus to be seated on a rightful throne. There is nothing greater to our benefit Nothing to further our happiness more than for Jesus to come and deal with our sin. Nothing could set us more free than what He came to do for us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Jesus came to bring mercy. A disciple knows the real Jesus. He is not a threat. He's not out to get you. He's not out to harm you. He's here as a Savior to rescue, to help, to protect, to provide. Second point, a disciple sees ourselves for who we are. John's view of himself was all in relation to what he saw in Jesus. So the two points are very much connected and they need to be in order. To see Jesus correctly, then it follows that seeing yourself will be correct as all. And what was John's statement? There's another one who's coming, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Along with his overall life purpose statement, he must increase I must decrease. How's that for a vision statement for your life? You put that on your refrigerator. He must increase. I must decrease. As the model that John lived by because he saw who Jesus was. This was not low self-esteem problems, issues in John's heart. It was not that he was down on himself, didn't like the way he looked, thought he was shaped funny or anything like that. No, he saw who Jesus was that resulted in a right perspective on himself. What John thought about himself was entirely in relationship to who Jesus was. That was the source of John's courage and John's boldness and John's strength and ultimately John's reputation. He could stand before kings and denounce them if need be. He had unusual courage. He went to Herod and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Who does that? John does. Why does John do it? Because John knew who Jesus was. And because John knew who Jesus was, he knew who he was. And the result was not a, a mealy mouth, low, down on himself, muttering. No, it was this bold, courageous guy that could stand up and declare the truth regardless of the cost to himself. Herod, on the other hand, because he did not recognize Jesus, he did not see himself accurately either. To Herod, he was far too important. Herod is presented to us as a self-serving, self-indulgent, opportunistic, opportunistic character 
and the scene we have is the birthday party that he threw for himself. And he invites all his guests, and it's a big party in his honor, and everything is going well. I suppose everybody is getting just a little bit drunk at this point, and out of the cake pops his stepdaughter, and the dance begins, and the party is on. And he, being so impressed, makes this rash vow to the girl. Ask me anything, even to half my kingdom. Now, that's not a taken to be an actual literal statement, but it is a little bit ironic because he wasn't actually a king. He didn't even have a kingdom to give half of, but it's one of those hyperbolic statements. I'll give you whatever you want. It was just an over-the-top statement that was a common statement to make saying, I'm open to anything. And of course, you know the answer because in that moment, Herodias, his wife, found her opportunity. She was waiting, plotting, scheming, watching, looking for her moment, and the moment arrived, and there it was, and she seized it. Go tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. We read that Herod was exceedingly sorrowful. Something about it dawned on him that he knew what he had done. He was sorry he did what he did. But notice, because of his guests. Okay, so the nobles and the commanders and the leaders in Galilee were all there. So in his moment of crisis, in the true telling moment, the big decision of his life, he doesn't look to Jesus, he looks to his guests. And he looks them all in the eye and he sees all their faces. And the result was he could not do what was right. See the contrast. John the Baptist looks to Jesus and therefore could do what was right even at his own cost, could stand before the king. The king looked to his friends, to his guests, to the people he wanted to impress, valued his own reputation too much and could not do the right thing. Even against, you could say, his, his own inclination, he knew it was the wrong thing to do, and yet something, and, and understand the, the, just the blatant contrast. Do you, do you read the story? Do you hear the story? And you almost brace yourself. Is he going to actually do it? He made such a rash vow. And oh no, not John. John's our hero. John's the good guy. Would he really do it? What would cause a man to do something so blatantly wrong, so obviously wrong, and for such a foolish, unnecessary reason? And we get a window into Herod's heart. He could not. He could not go back on his word. Why? Because he's looking at all the people whose approval he wanted to have, and he could not do it. John looks to Jesus, and he could do what was right. Herod looks to his peers, and he could not do it. We're told often that if you would just think more highly of yourself, you can do anything. In God's kingdom, does not seem to be the case, does it? 
the reality that we see here about true discipleship is that if you really look to Jesus and see him for who he is and see how high and exalted and how glorious he is, that's what will change your life. That's what will empower you. That's what will fill your soul with courage. That's what will give you grace to face every situation. True greatness comes from seeing Jesus is greater than ourselves. This is true discipleship. Third point, a disciple takes their doubts to Jesus. There's one thing that both of these men did have in common, and it was doubt. They both had moments, seasons, times in their lives where they doubted. While John was in prison, he was at a low point. He was discouraged. He wondered. He wondered if he got it right. He wasn't sure if if it was all the way he thought it was. He was so sure before. Now all of a sudden he's finding himself rotting away in prison. He doesn't know his future. He could be executed at any moment. And he wonders, was it all worth it? Did did I do the right thing? Is this how it ends? Does this really make any sense? He had a desperate moment, a crisis moment. His soul was wondering, and he doubted, and he wondered. But what he did was he sent his disciples to Jesus. Ask him, are you the one, or should we look for another? John took his doubts to Jesus because that's what disciples do. Herod doubted as well. We read this interesting sort of biography of Herod in these few verses. Herod, how he viewed John. He feared him because he knew him to be righteous and holy, a just man. He had a, meaning he had a deep respect for John. There was something about John that intrigued him. He saw John as courageous and devoted, and he was drawn to that. So much so that he was willing to keep him safe from his evil wife who was plotting to kill John, which she would have succeeded in doing except that Herod was there to protect him. And it said that he listened to John. So you kind of get the impression that he's got him in prison, but every so often Herod calls him in and says, preach me a sermon. Come and talk to me. I want to hear what you have to say. And so he was intrigued to listen to John, but it said, but he was puzzled. That word is one of the New Testament words for doubt, meaning he was kind of torn in the middle. He wasn't sure what to make of him. He was intrigued by him, but he couldn't quite settle on what he was saying. He was a little bit stuck. He couldn't ignore him, but he couldn't quite receive what he was saying either. He was caught in the middle between these two views. He doubted, but he heard him gladly. What a, what a mixture of emotions and relationship. It's like a, kind of a love-hate. I'm intrigued. I want to listen to you, but I'm, I'm not sure I can believe what you're saying. So I want to hear you again, but I'm not really sure. And he wavered, and he was stuck in the middle. And then he met his moment, his crisis moment at the party where he made, he recognized, he made the rash vow. And when he needed the strength at that moment, he didn't have it. Those doubts, 
Doubts can be very useful, very helpful occasions in our lives. I'd want to communicate to you that while unbelief is wrong and sinful, doubts are common. We all have times and seasons and situations and where we experience doubt. And the real issue and the real question is, what do you do with your doubts? John in prison, and he doubted. You find yourself in tough situations, and it may leave you in a place where you find yourself doubting. I went to school, so I expected to get a good job, but I don't have a good job. I got married to a Christian, and I thought I'd have a wonderful, godly household, but I don't. I've taken good care of myself. I thought I would live a healthy life, but I'm not. In other words, life is not playing out the way you expected. Even if your expectations were just vague and general or sometimes very specific, you just expected something better. You thought life was going to be better, but it's not better, and it's not, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and there's trials, and there's difficulties, and things you weren't expecting, and so you feel like, what did I do wrong? What's wrong? Where is God? Was I on the, on the right track? If, the assumption is if I was on the right track, I wouldn't be in this prison. And yet John was precisely on the right track. Challenging opportunity right there. What are you going to do with your doubts? John took his doubts to Jesus. Herod, in the midst of his doubts, looked to his peers, to his commanders, to his military leaders, to his nobles, and he failed his moment. The next time we see Herod is just before Jesus' Jesus' crucifixion, and we get nothing from Herod except mocking Jesus at that point. This was the turning point in this man's heart and life. I don't know if you realize this, but we're living in a day when there's a lot of people that are leaving the faith. There is a long list of deconversion stories. You can just Google it and read on infinitum about the stories of people leaving the faith. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Folks, we're living in that day. It's happening all around us. And notice the phrase that Paul wrote here to Timothy, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. This is very much the point that we're seeing here and making here out of Mark chapter 6. True disciple, true disciples doubt. But when true disciples doubt, they take their doubts to Jesus. If you're wondering something about Jesus, could I just recommend that the best place you're going to get your answer about Jesus is to go to 
Jesus. The challenge is, I'm not sure I can believe this Bible. I wonder if they tampered with it. I wonder if it's reliable. I wonder if Jesus really did rise from the dead. I wonder if these things are true. I wonder if all these things that we believed and signed off on and I grew up believing, I wonder if they're true. I doubt, I'm not certain whether they're true. What are you going to do with those doubts? It's the opportunity that you have to press in. If you want to know if Jesus really is who he is, look closely at Jesus. The challenges, what happens too often is we begin to doubt and we run so quickly to all the wrong voices who are only affirming those doubts, only to find ourselves ignoring the opportunities to know Jesus more. One of the challenges that happens in the midst of doubting is that we have a false sense, a false idea that we're supposed to be absolutely certain about everything. That sounds wonderful. Sounds like a nice, neat life. If we can say we're absolutely certain about everything, but sometimes we're simply not certain about everything. Now, certainly faith is assurance of things. But many people are stumbling and pulling away because they find themselves saying, I can't be absolutely certain. I'm going to borrow an illustration from Tim Keller. Sometimes I hear his illustrations that are so good, I think, well, maybe I should think of a different version, but it's just his. I don't know where he got it from, but it's his. You're hiking. You're up an Echo Mountain, and you're up on the trail, and it's a precipice. The trail is narrow. The cliff is deep, deadly. You slip. You lose your footing, and you start going down the cliff. Immediately, you know, if I fall, it's the end of my life. I, I won't survive this fall. And you start going down, but your, your eye catches a branch sticking out of the side near the top. And you look at that branch, and you ask yourself, because you have a lot of time to think here, a lot goes through your mind in those seconds. If I grab hold of that branch, am I certain that that branch will hold me. How big is it? How deep are its roots? How strong is it? Will it, in fact, I'm not certain. You might even say I'm 10, 20% certain that the branch will hold me. So because you're only 10 or 20% certain, should you not reach out and grab the branch? Because if you do, and you grab the branch, and it holds you, and you're there, and I, deep breath, are you only 10% saved? No, you're 100% rescued. It, it did it even though you weren't entirely certain the branch could do it, but you went to the right place. You grabbed hold of the right thing even though you weren't certain. There was a gentleman that came to Jesus, and Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, yeah, kind of, sort of. I'm trying, but would you help my unbelief? Because I kind of believe and I kind of don't. I really want to believe, but I'm struggling to believe. I'm kind of in the middle. Do, do you realize that Jesus didn't send him away? Well, go figure it out and let me know when you decide. 
Because if you come back and you're certain, then I can heal you. But if you come back and you're not certain, then, you know, there's no room for unbelief in the room here. The power doesn't work when there's unbelief. So it wasn't the case. I want you to know that if you're experiencing doubts, that can be a very good thing. This can be a crucial moment in your faith. I think we have to learn some things, and I, and I believe it's a, it's, it's a lesson for us as a church as well. Because I think sometimes we're too inclined to look at doubt and somebody who's doubting as a kind of infectious poison. And we get a little standoffish. We turn our head away a little bit because somebody is asking too difficult of questions, too hard of questions, or questions that we assumed we were all on the same page about. And there's doubts going on. And we react to doubts maybe sometimes more with just disappointment that might even lead to ostracizing the doubter like it's a kind of disease or a poison. In Jude, verse 22, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to actually just turn to the book of Jude. It's the little book right before Revelation. I, I would like you to turn there, if you will, because I don't know if you're like me, but I've read the Bible many, many times in my life, and I must have blinked or sneezed at verse 22 because I read it this past week, I think, for the first time in my life. Maybe you'll find that the case as well. This is what Jude, verse 22, says. And have mercy on those who doubt. I don't know why I never read that verse before. I don't know where it was. I know I read through the whole Bible. I know I read every word, and all of a sudden I read it this week, and I realized God says very explicitly to his church, have mercy on those who doubt. A lot of those deconversion stories include testimony of how badly the church responded to doubts. And so I say this to encourage us all to have a change of heart, to let the Word of God transform us. So when it's your friend or that person close to you or in your life that is walking through some doubts, I hope what I'm saying and what you just looked at on the pages of Scripture would ring true in your heart and you'd stop yourself and, and stop yourself from the visceral reactions like, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying that. Why are you questioning that? And have mercy on those who doubt. Last point. Disciples die with Jesus. This account ends with John's death. He's in prison, alone, obscurity, frivolous party, rash vow, completely unnecessary, but a weak, sold leader, too afraid to embarrass himself, contradict his rash, drunken vow, couldn't do the right thing, calls for his head, the executioner goes, and takes off John's head, his life is over. He 
D.A. Carson in his commentary writes this, this episode is more than a digression to explain what happened to John after he was in prison. It highlights the cost of discipleship and foreshadows the ultimate model for discipleship, namely Jesus himself. You recall John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Savior. He came to prepare the way for the Savior to come. He comes just before, six months before Jesus, and he's just ahead of him, preparing the way with his preaching, with his message, with his baptizing, with his calling to repentance, with his declaration of the kingdom of God coming. But John also was the forerunner to Jesus in his death. The parallels between John's death and Jesus' death are several. They were both arrested. Both had people plotting for their deaths. Both had people afraid of them that feared them. Both were innocent but executed. Both had civil rulers that hesitated, didn't actually in all their being want to have them executed and yet yielded to the pressure, the peer pressure of the people around. The deaths had many parallels. Even in death, John prepared the way for Jesus. And when we get ahead in Mark chapter 9, I think one of the community groups had been there already. Jesus starts talking about his death, and he refers back to John as the Elijah that came, and he said, and they did to him whatever they desired, meaning they executed him. So Jesus pointing back to John about John's death, which was pointing to Jesus and his death as Jesus is beginning to say, this is what I am all about too. I'm here to go to the cross. When we get into the second half of the Gospel of Mark, that's going to become the new theme. First half of the book, who is this Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? When we get into past chapter 8 and into the second half of the book, Jesus begins to fixate on the cross, and it all becomes a long, drawn-out passion narrative of Jesus talking about his death and going to his death. Everything about John's death pointed to the death of Jesus himself, the death that was the substitute for the death that you and I deserve. Because Jesus died, we can live. His death becomes prominent in his life and ministry because it's because of his death that you and I can be a disciple, that you and I can be adopted in, that you and I can be declared righteous, that you and I can be a son and a daughter of God. He had to go to his death in order to win the victory over death on your behalf and on mine. It's because he died that Paul could say, I die daily, meaning every day he's living with a kind of death to the old self, to the old man, and living in the new life that was purchased to us in Christ on the cross. Paul would also talk about seeing all the trials and the tribulations in his life as carrying about in his body the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gladly, 
all the trials that we face, I, I, I see them as, oh, we get an opportunity to carry in our lives and in our bodies the death of our Lord. We identify with Christ. In the way we live sacrificially, we identify with the death of Christ. In chapter 6, Mark is just getting warmed up on this whole death of Christ concept. He's just paving the way. He wanted to tell us about John's death so he could get us to start to think about the death of Christ. So John's death points to Christ. And you don't fully know and understand who Jesus is until you know and understand Jesus in his death. If you don't understand the cross, you don't fully understand who he is. There's, there's no knowing Jesus without the cross. The cross is so much a part of who he is. Guy, the worship team, come on up as we're nearing the end here. The text presses us with some questions. Are we a disciple. It's the challenge that the text wants to bring to us. Are you a disciple? Am I a disciple? What's the criteria? Do you know who Jesus is? Who he truly is? Do you see Jesus? Next, do you see yourself? So how you see Jesus a little bit more like John, a little bit more like Herod. Savior, come to rescue me. He's a threat coming to condemn me. Take my fun away. Take my life away. Take my freedom away. Expose my sin. How do you see Jesus? From there, how do you see yourself? So important. Maybe willing to let Jesus come along and help you with your plan for your life. Or is it a little bit more like John? There's this other one coming. I'm not, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. As far as what my life needs to be all about, my life needs to be about making him greater. So he must increase. I must decrease. Then I want to ask you folks, if you're doubting. Are you experiencing doubts? And are these doubts beginning to debilitate you, causing you to stumble, hesitate in your faith, leaving you stuck in, in between two, two views, two ideas? I'm not quite sure. I can't really sign off on it. I wonder if it's true. First of all, I just want to say, you are so not alone. Maybe, maybe one or two in the room would say, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And that just means you're just a little too young yet to know. Every one of us who's been walking with the Lord knows what it's like to experience doubts so you're not alone. And also, you don't have to be in big trouble because you're in doubts. You actually have a wonderful opportunity to know the Lord 
having doubts means you didn't quite know the Lord as well as maybe you thought you did. And maybe that's part of the disillusionment that you're experiencing. But here is the opportunity to know him for who he truly is. Why don't you stand? We're going to close with a song, but I also wanted to ask. We've got some folks that are ready to pray with you. And prayer team, if that's you, if you wouldn't mind maybe just going off to the side to the corridors and make yourself available. And folks, one of the things we want to sort of reinstate and do again is this chance to just pray with you if you need prayer. And particularly if you're here and you're struggling with doubts, these folks are here that just want to pray with you. And you can just confess that to them. I'm just wrestling, I'm struggling, I'm having doubts. And they would be more than glad to pray with you. If you've got another need, if you've got something else going on, your soul is troubled, there's a desperate need in your life, go talk to these folks. Just share briefly with them what's going on and let them pray with you. And watch and see what the Lord does. So let's go ahead and go for prayer if you need it. We'll close together with a song, and I'll be back in just a minute. We'll close the meeting.